Those with a drive to go have an undeniable calling. They are not content to simply have a transformative idea. They want to create and build. They want to wrestle challenges to the ground and bring solutions to scale. They are makers and doers. They are go-getters. Go-Getters features straight-up conversations with leaders on the forefront of change who are taking action to impact our world, just as Lehigh people have done for more than 150 years. Join us as we explore their challenges, their passions, and what makes them go. Welcome to Go-Getters. Please note that the following was recorded before the disruption caused by the coronavirus and you may hear references to things that have since changed. Please stay with us after the interview for an update from our guest, and visit our website at lehigh.edu slash go-getters for extras and bonus content. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Go-Getters. Today I'm with Martin Harmer, the Alcoa Foundation Professor of Material Science and Engineering at Lehigh University. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to you, John. Appreciate being here. So, Martin, how long have you been at Lehigh? Oh my God! I think I think I met Asa Packer when I first came. Does that give you a clue? Um, <laughs> so I've been here 40 years now. And where are you originally from? So I grew up in a small village in England, in in the village of Hessel on the northeast coast in Yorkshire. Uh, I went to Leeds University, uh, studied uh, ceramics there as an undergraduate and a PhD. Uh, my advisor's name was Richard Brooke. He's now Sir Richard Brooke. He's knighted, so that makes me a squire or something like that. I help him on his horse or something like that. So how does someone uh, from England end up in the Lehigh Valley? Good question. Okay. So, uh, so my story is um, I was always fascinated by electron microscopy and microscopes. My Advisor recognized that in me, my interest, so he arranged for me to get a scholarship to go to UC Berkeley for one year. This is my second year of grad school. Uh, and Berkeley had, at the time, the National Center for Electromicroscopy, headed up by a Welshman, Gareth Thomas, probably one of the most famous microscopists in, in the US. So I went there, uh, took, that was my first sort of voyage outside of, uh, outside of the homeland uh, for a year worked with Gareth Thomas, uh, had a fantastic year. This is the 1980s. This was the golden years of ceramics research in many ways. All the pioneers of my field were in the US. I got to meet all the great names and, and characters of the field. Uh, I was invited to a conference that really influenced me in Detroit. It was a ceramic society annual meeting where I met all of the famous rock stars of our field, as it were. Uh, to me, that was tremendously exciting. They invited me to um, to participate. Um, so my advisor really did me a, a huge favor there. While I was there, I got to meet some folks from Lehigh. I didn't know Lehigh from a hole in the wall at the time. Uh, uh, I pronounced it right, at least, at the first time. Um, so they invited me. Apparently, there's an opening at Lehigh. Uh, Lehigh has a very famous electron microscopy effort. Uh, and did have then. Uh, lots of Brits there as well, so I kind of felt at home, so they invited me to give a seminar. Uh, there were two or three scientists at the time that I thought I could really work well with, one in defect chemistry and one in uh, sintering, which was my topic, so I, everything sort of gelled around the areas that I was interested in. So I got offered a job as a second year grad student here at Lehigh, 
came back with that piece of paper. It's actually dated on my birthday, which was amazing. Uh, showed it to my advisor, and he said, go for it. Go there for five years. Uh, well, we're glad you're here. Here I am. <laughs> In 40 years. So I think um, uh, most people, when they think of microscopy, uh, think about optical microscopes and probably have seen pictures of cells or pictures of viruses or bacteria. Uh, you're really in the field of electron microscopy. Correct. Uh, how small an object can you see with that technique? What what's uh, you know what's state of the art today? So the state of the art. So there's been a really interesting sort of revolution in microscopy over the last decade or so. So um, so over the last several decades, I mean, micros electron microscopes. The reason we use electrons is because their wavelength is very small. The wavelength dictates the size of the features you can see. So theoretically, the wavelength of electrons is way, way smaller than the size of an atom. So if you just took the wavelength, you should be able to see atoms very easily. Okay. It's very hard to make a microscope with the lenses made perfectly enough that you can exploit that low um, resolution or high resolution that you get with the electrons. So what limits has limited the microscopes has been this lens issue. It's called aberration in the lens. We could still, you know, for many years, you know, we could still see close to the atomic scale. That all changed dramatically about a decade ago. About 10 years ago, um, computer scientists and, and lens engineers finally figured out how to remove the aberration uh, of a lens so that you could see images of atoms absolutely clearly without any, with a one-to-one -one correspondence between what you see and, and what you, you've got. So this is called aberration correction, AC. Um, people talk about AC, BC, you know, after correction, before correction, I kind of like that, it's cute. But that was around the year 2000, early 2000s. Lehigh was the first university in the US to get two aberration corrected microscopes. That, that was a really big deal. Uh, we now have a, you know, a really superb aberration-corrected microscope. So we were the early pioneers in microscopy, getting instruments that could see at that level. But we can't lead anymore by just having an aberration-corrected or the best instruments. We need to do much more than that. And we can talk about, I think, what we're doing to, to, to leapfrog the field here. Uh, so it's an incredibly exciting field. The microscope then is the only really window that you have to look inside materials to see what's going on at the atom scale. Uh, and I mean, actually, if you think about all of the global problems and challenges and health and security, global warming, economic prosperity, defense, uh, it all relies on new materials. Okay, the breakthroughs, if we're gonna need breakthroughs in the future, uh, to address them. It'll be with new materials and we manipula manipulate them at the atomic level. Uh, so the only way we can see that is with, with the electron microscope. So it's our indispensable tool, I think, to, uh, to address the problems of the future. So I'd like to move us a little bit from uh, sort of the uniqueness of the devices to how you actually use them. And, and, and I do want to uh, stress, you know, you are an endowed 
professor at at the institution, and that's uh, academia's highest honor that we can bestow on a faculty member. And and I'd say it's in reflection of uh, highly innovative work and the fact that you're a world leader in your field, you know, for the last forty years. What I'm really interested in is uh, how you get your ideas. <laughs> you know, uh, how are you able to uh, to innovate? You know, how does the inner workings of Martin Harmer's <laughs> mind uh, exploit the technology and use it in ways that provide critical insights into scientific problems? Well, that's a great question. My wife could probably answer it better than I can, but. Um, <laughs> Well, let me make a few, few, few points that come to my mind about that. I mean, they say everyone has brilliant ideas at some point. You don't quite know when they're going to come in. And I sort of believe that to some extent. So I do think the issue is then recognizing when you get one and being willing to take the action to get a hold of that idea and move it forward and implement it and push it as far as it can go. So from my perspective looking backwards I think that's kind of the personality I've I've been I think when I do get on those rare occasions I do get what I think is a really good idea I really stick with it and I, I believe in pushing it forward um, but I think ideas really come from very rare does it just I think come out of nowhere I think it's connecting experiences that you get from different situations it's making those connections. The longer you're in the field, I think, the longer you're around, the more experiences you have and the more likely it is to, for something to nucleate. You're a chemist. It's a, it's a nucleation process, right? So it's bringing <laughs> things together uh, and nucleating this idea. And the further they are away from the context that you're working in, but that you can bring it into that context, this is why interdisciplinary research is so powerful. Uh -huh. The, the, the ideas don't necessarily always have to be that brilliant in themselves. It's, it's how clever you can combine them in ways that make it completely new. I mean, Steve Jobs demonstrated that, didn't he? So well, he brings art, music, video together in a way that nobody's done that before, and then you create some magic. You create something really special. You create so you can bring ordinary things together in special ways to make something extraordinary. So I think I focused a lot of my thinking on uh, reaching beyond my ex area of expertise, looking at and listening very carefully and recognizing when I hear uh, ideas that I can bring together and combine them in ways that will create something really special and really, and really different and really new. There's, there's often a catalyst as well, I think, that sort of spouts you off on that. We actually met four years ago, uh, almost five years ago, and you and your colleagues uh, uh, scheduled some time with me to to convince me to uh, launch the Presidential Research Initiative, uh, looking for new areas in which Lehigh could actually uh, impact uh, science, engineering, broadly defined, and in a truly interdisciplinary way. And out of that initiative came the uh, Nano-Human Interface Project, right. which you're actually leading. Right. Uh, so uh, where did that idea come from? That idea came from a few, few. I can remember distinctly a few uh, situations where it, it, it all came together. So one was in a talk someone gave on my, I was at a microscopy event. Someone gave a, a talk and they showed a slide with two microscopes. One had a picture of a microscope and it said 1930 or 1940, it's an old picture. 
One had two, now, 2,000. And I looked at this. I thought, my goodness. Yeah, the, nine, the 2020 microscope is bigger and it's fancier and it's got a few more knobs and dials and it looks more glossy. But what struck me was that these scopes haven't changed in terms of how they look for 50 or 60 years. What, what's changed is the instrument can do a lot more, but the way we operate it hasn't changed there. It's somebody sitting at a control, collecting information in a dark room. There has to be a better way to do it. The second uh, real trigger, the real catalyst, was a phone conversation I had. So I was, I was talking on a phone conversation with one of our alum, uh, Al Romig, who spent his whole career in defense. Uh, and we're talking about defense, and we're talking about aircraft. We're talking about uh, modern fighter planes. Okay. So he, he made a comment to me that really stuck in my mind. He said, well, you know, if you take a, a modern fighter aircraft like an F-35, why is that one of the best fighting machines, you know, airplanes in the world? Where well, is the U.S. superiority coming from? I said, well, it's probably because the engines are better and you can go faster. And he said, no, it really isn't that much different mechanically, uh, speed-wise, you know, a little bit better than, than the opposition, than our enemies. Right, Russia. Where we've invested, where the U.S. has the lead, clear lead over everyone in the world, is how we've learned to integrate the pilot's uh, perception and understanding and integration of the technology in the plane. It's the human machine integration, where we take machine intelligence and integrate that with the human intelligence. And he said that we've brought cognitive scientists, neuroscientists, human scientists, the social science of understanding how to give that pilot the advantage so that they don't focus all their efforts on driving the machine. They focus all their efforts on the mission at hand so that they have great spatial awareness, they can talk and perceive and understand. And it's a very intuitive, natural uh, environment. No one has beaten the US in that, in that arena. That was the moment for me. I thought, we need to do that. Now I'm thinking back to seeing that the, the equivalent of the pilot in front of the microscope, we are not doing that in science. We need to take, our science tools are like, micro, our microscopes are like the F-35. They're amazing machines. But, but the operators have to have a PhD, they have to have a great background. It's so uh, sophisticated to run. So that was, that triggered the whole idea, I think, originally of the nano-human interface. It's the interface between humans and scientific tools. And I think we can, I honestly believe we'll make a revolution happen if we can change that dynamic between the two, and it's happening. So what uh, groups have you brought together on campus uh, to participate in the initiative? So this is one of the most enjoyable aspects of this project. And, um, and I have to say, I think it's the most ambitious and exciting project I've ever been involved in at Lehigh. And, and this is the reason why, because we have computer scientists. We have cognitive scientists from psychology. We have... Uh, computer scientists, uh, we have bioengineers, we have material scientists, and we have an educational theorist on the team. 
and that's at Lehigh. Uh, in addition to that, we're, we're collaborating outside, but that team of expertise is um, a very, very powerful mix of different disciplines, and they're all working together in different aspects in multiple projects, uh, and I think we're making really, really great progress. It's exciting to see, you know, a psychologist sitting with a material scientist who's there with a, with a, a headset on, with eye trackers where they're uh, studying how they uh, interact with an instrument and how they interact with data and imagery, uh, asking questions that we never would have asked about how we do research. Likewise, they're learning about what we do in material science. So it's been a real... Uh, broadening education for all of us. It's really quite wonderful, actually. I think it's a great, great initiative. Uh, you know that since we decided to fund it. <laughs> um, so uh, I would say it, it, at this point in your career, when, when you came forward with this, uh, with this idea, uh, you could have easily just continued the lines of research that you were doing. Right, you're one of the best in the world at it. You're invited all over the world to talk about it, but you took the risk to try and do something very different. And and I think uh, uh, people would uh, enjoy hearing about how how you think about risk um, in the trajectory of a you know career of a scientist. That's a good question. A good question. I think there's lots. Of thoughts than I could have on that. Um, I mean, if you have a big idea, then that's the nucleation stage. The next step is someone has to invest in it. You have to convince someone or some agency. The bigger the idea, the bigger the risk. And, and, and as my career has gone on, I mean, I think we've discussed this before, I think you, as a faculty member, you have a portfolio of of projects that you can submit for where some are relatively low risk and some are very high risk and I think as your career goes on you can afford to go for the much higher risk ventures because um, as you establish yourself it, it, it's uh, m and it's much more satisfying to try for a bigger project uh, to launch something big Let's take a short break. How can artificial intelligence be used to combat human trafficking? What will future finance jobs look like? How do algorithms improve efficiency? If you're looking for insight on current hot topics or just love to learn, join a Mountain Talk. In these 30-minute video chats brought to you by Alumni Relations, a Lehigh expert shares new discoveries and perspectives on challenges facing our world today. Listen live or on demand. Visit gocampaign.lehigh.edu slash engage. Now's the time to join Lehigh's virtual alumni book club. Join hundreds of fellow alumni to explore discussion-worthy books throughout the year in an easy and engaging online forum. To sign up, visit gocampaign.lehigh.edu slash engage. Welcome back to Go-Getters. We're talking with Martin Harmer. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. Um, I ran into you in London. You did indeed. I did. And, and uh, um, 
it's interesting. I run into Lehigh people all over the world. <laughs> you and I decided to uh, get together and, and just talk. Uh, but you had to cut it uh, short because um, you were taking a magic class. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, so tell me about that hobby. I've always been fascinated by magic. Yeah, I really have since I've been a little kid. I guess we had this arc. Magic shops tend to be just fascinated in themselves. Like we had a little arcade. They're always in some little arcade in some, you know, cute, quaint place. And you go in and there's just there's all these different tricks and things displayed. So I've always been fascinated by it. I always did it as a kid for fun. I've just liked, liked mastering tricks and having fun with it. So when I was in London, this is the most famous magic shop, the oldest magic shop in the country. Uh, there and uh, I went for lessons for three weeks and uh, it's revived me, uh, my interest in magic. Uh, I'm teaching a class this semester so I throw in magic, uh, which they love magic uh, when I'm doing the class. And you know, I was thinking about more and more about this recently as I was having fun with the class. The things you learn, the, the skills required to do magic well are really important. You know, you you learn to um, practice, practice, practice. You you learn that it's okay and expected to make lots of mistakes and fail all the time until you get it right. You learn to be confident. You've got to do something really, really well. You learn showmanship. You you learn how to attract attention. Okay. Uh, you you learn how to um, be ingenious because to do magic well you adapt it to the audience to their needs and interests so there's a lot of ingenuity and um, improvisation and creativity that goes into magic we create magic in engineering by bringing to magic the, the key is again similar it's you can take seemingly ordinary things <laughs> combine them in a new way and then you make the magic you make something extraordinary and that's what we're doing in engineering in, in many cases. We're bringing together uniquely in unique new ways uh, combinations that we create magic. We create something new. And at the end, you look at it and you say, and much of my science, when I look back, we've made what I think is several really great breakthroughs in science. And after you've made the breakthrough, inevitably, you say, well, it's so simple and so obvious. Let's return to the nano-human interface. Right. Um, which, uh, uh, building on what you just said, is uh, your latest effort to leapfrog. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, for out five years from now, what you're hoping has been achieved in the effort? I'm, yeah, I'm hoping in five years from now, people will look at what we've built and see it as the go-to place, one of a kind in the United States for how we should, we scientists should be interacting with the tools of scientific discovery. And I mean, where we're at with the project, we've, we're sort of halfway through, I think at the moment, achieving the goal of creating the facility and demonstrating it. So we've got like five groups working I've got the psychologists working with the material scientists on figuring out how we can best interact with instruments one of the other needs is the so much data 
that we're generating, we need a really good repository for the data. That's a big issue. So we actually have a collaboration with many other schools to build that. So we've got these small subgroups making these efforts, and we're going to integrate all of that, bring it all together, and eventually it's going to appear in the when we launch this in the health science technology building. We're going to have a visualization, data analysis, a nano-human interface lab there, and uh, it'll be a show. It'll be a showcase. It'll be a dazzling facility. I'm going to switch gears and do some of the lightning round. Uh, so, uh, so Martin, you're a fisherman. I am. So, uh, so in the classical approach to this, can uh, you use your hands and show me the size of the biggest <laughs> fish that you've actually caught? Uh, I'm not. I think the room is not big enough. Not big enough. Yeah, let's see. I see. No, uh, I, sort of like uh, actually, the largest fish that we've caught. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Is a 700-pound blue marlin, which we caught three years ago in Ocean City, Maryland. I should say my nephew this caught bay? this. It was yeah, so how far out do you have to go to do that? 100 miles. 100 miles. 100 wow. miles out, yeah. It's kind so it's the name of your boat? Cheeky Monkey. <laughs> oh, that's got to be explained. <laughs> okay, so Cheeky Monkey is a very British expression. Uh, we use it a lot with our kids. So Cheeky means mischievous, and Cheeky Monkey is sort of how monkeys are mischievous. So you say, don't be cheeky, don't be a Cheeky Monkey. So our... Um, Children often get called cheeky monkeys. So I wanted a really British name for the bow. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, there any bumper stickers on your car? I don't. The only sticker I have in the car is a Coast Guard, because I'm a Coast Guard captain. So I'll explain that. How, so, how that yeah, what's the so, history there? So because I'm into boating, so I've been boating for 20 years. Uh, so I went through all the certificates and so on. So I uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll make this a you know part-time hobby, and I need a Coast Guard Merchant Marine license to do that. Mm -hmm. So I uh, studied for the Coast Guard exam. I have to say it was harder than a PhD. It was really, it was really <laughs> tough. It was a tough exam. So it gave you ideas about being a PhD mentor. <laughs> it did indeed. It did indeed. So I took the exam and now I, I have this little certificate um, that I'm a Coast Guard Merchant Marine officer. I can marry people. I can bury people. Oh. Uh, I can, you know, do it as a living if I wish. So. so what's your advice for students? You know, if you had a good sound bite for the current generation of students, what would you advise? Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Don't be pushed by your problems. <laughs> be drawn by your, your dreams. Uh, be independent. Think for yourselves. Um, and provide solutions and, and don't bring me problems. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true advisor. True advisor, uh, right, yeah. Any trips on your bucket list? Um, on my bucket list? Always wanted to go to New, New Zealand. Um, just just fascinating place. I've, actually, no, I would say the number one place I would like to go is Alaska. Okay. Alaska, um, obviously from the point of view, I'm a fisherman, I like there. But there's a wonderful uh, story I heard about Alaska, which you, it's just reminded me, asking me that question. Uh, and something about the, 
the Alaskans. So I heard, and, and maybe this is ad advice too to to our students and maybe maybe alumni. So I heard this story, which I thought was very very interesting, that in Alaska apparently people who have uh, vacation homes make them available to uh, visitors free, and apparently they put little sign on the door it says you're welcome to come into my house total strangers just leave it a little bit better than the way you found it so apparently people in alaska will do that they'll occupy a home total stranger but then they'll leave you know flowers there or some kind of gesture and i thought what a wonderful thing i want to go to alaska and visit someone's home and, and leave it better than i found it but you asked me earlier about lehigh what keeps me at lehigh too and i think uh, what I love about Lehigh is that the people are so loyal and devoted to this institution, they all give back. They all give back to this institution and make it a better place than it was. Uh, and you're doing that, John. You're making this a much better place than it was, and so will your successors and so on. And, and that's a history that we can be very proud of here. That was fun. <laughs> oh, it's fun, Martin. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'm glad you could be on uh, part of our series. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. I appreciate being invited. I'll come back anytime. This is Janet Norwood, one of the co-producers of the Go-Getters podcast. Because the interview you just heard was recorded before the coronavirus changed the world, we're catching up again with Martin Harmer for a quick update. Martin, thanks for talking with us today. So I thought we could start with you describing the scene outside your window right now. Yes, well, I'm looking at beautiful sunshine in uh, southern Florida. Uh, I'm in Stewart, Florida. I, uh, I'm in a marina, Sunset Bay Marina. Uh, I came down at spring break, March 4th is when I came down. expecting to be here just for a few days to check on our boat. Uh, it turned out that was when the virus was, um, situation was becoming much more critical and um, the flights that we were scheduled to return on were canceled. Uh, so we really had nowhere to, to get back from Florida. So we stayed on the boat and we've been here for six weeks and uh, totally unexpected. Uh, in some ways we're in a very good place to, for social distancing because we're floating away from uh, most of the people around us. But it's been uh, my wife and I who are here together. Uh, Andrea, she works also at Lehigh part-time. And she also works at Kutztown University. So fortunately, we bought a computer, so we're sharing our computer and uh, remotely uh, working from here, interacting with the students and, and so forth at Lehigh. So what was the transition like to remote teaching unexpectedly? It was, as for everyone, it was a real challenge and, and a learning experience. Uh, and I think what was important was to listen a lot to how the students were were reacting and uh, how they were feeling, especially at the early stages of the, uh, the remote teaching. So we sent a lot of surveys out from our department and got a lot of feedback, uh, and I was uh, in good communication with many of my students. We had to make a lot of adjustments that I think have really helped. Uh, I think our expectations 
for the students had to be re-evaluated, the stress that they were under, the various family situations uh, uh, were putting a number of the students in very extraordinary situations that we had to accommodate. And um, I think I think we've, over several weeks, found a new equilibrium. Um, I know I, I had to give a final exam, so I reset the exam as a take-home and gave it to the students over a much longer period of time, and that's worked out very well. I gave my cell phone to the students. Many of them called me at uh, many different times and different days to get help, and that's... Uh, that's helped, I think. I've really missed the students. Uh, it's, it's interesting how uh, situations like this, you don't really appreciate what you've got until you, until you lose it. And just losing these interactions with the students and the communication has really, uh, really sent home to me the uh, message of how important those interactions are. Are there new opportunities or new things you're trying in your class or things that you're not able to replicate? Um, not really for me. I mean, it, my situation was, was I was very fortunate because I was co-teaching a class with a colleague. And I, I taught the first half, uh, which was live, of course, and my junior colleague He's teaching the second half, so mostly I'm mentoring him on how he can best uh, instruct the students in his half. And he he was actually uh, given a more challenging situation because he had to work with the students on computer programming and doing a lot of uh, computational work. And normally he would be in the classroom to demonstrate that, so that required quite a bit of adjustment. So I've been working with him to help him through that. But mostly it's been uh, guiding the students uh, uh, in a much more uh, detailed way than I probably would have done uh, conventionally. But they're doing remarkably well and um, I'm, I'm confident that they're going to come through this stronger than, than before actually. I think it's been an experience, real learning experience. We we say our job is to teach the students how to um, deal with change, and this is a great real world experience to live through that. And fortunately, I think I'm finding the Lehigh students are really doing exceptionally well. And what do they think of you teaching from your boat? Oh, I get a hard time on that. I get no sympathy, of course, here. <laughs> <laughs> very hard to get sympathy when you're in Florida in a beautiful climate and it's 30 degrees back at Bethlehem uh, and they all find that amusing especially on the uh, the Zoom calls when you see the background when I'm in the boat people now with Zoom can put false backgrounds onto the Zoom picture, I don't know if you've seen that Janet, but mm -hmm. they all assume that I'm putting up this fake background of palm trees and and boats in Florida where it's actually the real background, so that's kind of funny. So how has the nano-human interface project been affected by the coronavirus situation? Well, it's interesting. I've been giving quite a bit of thought to the pandemic and our nano-human interface project. 
I think I've realized, well, we all realize, I think now, that we need much better tools, not just to communicate with one another, but to actually scientifically collaborate in remote atmospheres. I mean, we need something better than screen sharing is essentially what people are doing right now. And I think the nano-human interface facility and project is going to provide a really great solution to that because it focuses on collaborative remote data acquisition and analysis. Uh, and a central facility capability to the project is building a distributed and, and a searchable database, cyber infrastructure, as it were, to enable continued acquisition, analysis, discovery and innovation when experiments can't be done like the case during the pandemic so i think that that's a really uh, a really valuable facility for the future and this remote data environment is really going to i think expand and improve our institutional relationships with our partners because we're partnering now with places such as NIST and University of Maryland, Ohio State, Sloan Kettering, and various and Naomi Research Laboratory. The other aspect that I think is really interesting will be the social science, the social science aspect of as we are all adjusting to the multitasking demands of living in a, a world that's remote and uh, so, so I think the fact that we're already including behavioral testing facilities where social scientists examine how we interact in this way uh, and the, the workloads associated with the cognitive workloads associated with multitasking demands of remote data analysis and so forth, I think are going to be really valuable. This summer we are... Uh, Going forward with our nano-human interface undergraduate summer fellow program, we're bringing in any students to work with us. Uh, that can all be done remotely, so we can continue that. So I feel uh, confident that the project, in, in most of its ways, will continue uh, in a remote way, but in a productive way. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quite confident that the project is going to move forward successfully. Is there anything you think you'll take away from this experience? Well, I think a number of things. You know, I think the importance of communities. And uh, I remember one of, you know, if I look back at Lee, I want to, one of the most memorable commencement speakers I heard going back was Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know if you heard mm -hmm. his, his speech. Uh, yes, I did. Mm -hmm. But I do remember him saying, you know, one of the most important bits of advice was, Form as many gangs as you can. That doesn't mean street gangs, but, you know, the idea was how important it was to have small uh, communities that you develop. And uh, we have our family, and then we have, I have my marina community, and I have the Lehigh family, uh, which is a, a strong and important community. And I think this event is helping everyone to realize how important these communities are to us and vitally important 
and you really miss them. I mean, I really miss my Lehigh family and other other families, other groups, my uh, the friends that I've met in the boating world, uh, several of whom actually have suffered some very serious uh, consequences of the of the virus. None of them passed away, but one or two came very close with serious pneumonia and things of this nature. Um, so I think I think it really hits home to everyone. Thanks so much for talking with us again. I appreciate it. I hope you stay safe and well and uh, safe travels home. Likewise. Same to you, Janet, and uh, look forward to seeing you when I get back. This has been Go-Getters, a podcast from Lehigh University hosted by President John Simon. Curious about Martin's magic skills? Visit lehigh.edu slash go-getters to check out his Inside the Episode page and watch a video of him performing a special trick for President Simon. Special thanks to today's guest, Martin Harmer, Alcoa Foundation Professor and Senior Faculty Advisor for Engineering Research Initiatives at Lehigh University. Thanks also to sound engineer James Plotkin, co-producers Aaron Firestone and Janet Norwood, and the Lehigh University Office of Development and Alumni Relations.